1996, Bill Gates said, content is king. And boy was he right. Three decades later, it still occupies the throne. For lawyers, law firms, and companies serving the legal industry, content marketing and thought leadership marketing are must if they want to build their books of business or increase their revenues. Hi, I'm Wayne Pollock. I'm a former AmLaw 50 senior associate who discovered the world of content marketing and thought leadership marketing and hasn't looked back. In each episode of this podcast, I interview lawyers and legal industry in-house marketers who are doing big things with their content marketing and thought leadership marketing. This is Legally Contented. Welcome to episode three of Legally Contented. I'm your host, Wayne Pollock. When we talk about lawyers engaging in content marketing and thought leadership marketing, we are almost always talking about lawyers who are doing so to build their books of business, to build the revenues of their law firms, to build their legal practices. There's almost always a marketing or business development intent behind the effort. And quite frankly, that is exactly what you would expect. It is a form of marketing and business development. But what happens when lawyers are prolific, not because they're necessarily trying to build a book of business, but because they have a message to share. They have change they want to affect. My next guest, Olga Mack, I think is a perfect example of such a lawyer. Olga is currently the CEO of Parley Pro, which is a contract management company that's pioneering digital negotiation technology. But she is prolific. She's written for Above the Law, VentureBeat, Newsweek, Forbes Technology Council, Bloomberg Law, ACC Docket, MIT Computational Law Report. She is a lawyer focused on the future of law and the intersection of law and technology. And she makes no bones about that. She says, as you'll hear in the interview, that she is building the future of law. In this interview, pay attention to the passion she has for the topics that she writes about, her reasons for wanting to share her thoughts with the world and the opportunities that have come about because she has been so willing to share her thoughts. Aside from being knowledgeable and wise about the future of law and the intersection between law and technology, she is passionate. Her energy is infectious. I think it will come through your earbuds, come through your headphones, and perhaps inspire you to take a bit more of a passionate approach to your own content marketing and thought leadership marketing, and not to just go through the motions of doing content marketing and thought leadership marketing to build your book of business, but to take stands on issues inside the law and out that you firmly believe in. Enjoy my interview with Olga Mack. Hi, and welcome to Legally Contented. I'm your host, Wayne Pollock. I'm here today with Olga Mack. Olga, thanks so much for joining us. Please say hello and introduce yourself and tell us all how you got to where you are today. Hi, Wayne. It's great to be here. I am, I'm really delighted to have a conversation with you. I guess it's a long story, but to make it short, today I'm building the future of law. In the past, I was a tech lawyer by design. There are quite a lot of things that happen, but who cares? Today, I'm building the future of law. You've been doing a lot of building in your career. I have to say that Going through your LinkedIn profile is like the infinite scroll that you see on Twitter or the Facebook feed or the LinkedIn feed, except it's your profile. It just keeps going and going. I, I want to hear about your career path because what's interesting to me and the reason why I asked you to join is because you are a prolific creator. You create content. You're a writer. You're a podcaster. 
you are building the future of law, you're a lawyer, yet you are not in private practice. You had a stint at, in private practice in the beginning of your career, but you're not in private practice. And so often we see lawyers think about content marketing. They think about public, publishing their insights. They think about going on podcasts and doing videos in connection with their legal practice. But you don't have a book of business to build. You're not a managing partner of a law firm. I want to hear about your time in the industry and, and what got you thinking about publishing your thoughts, talking to the public about where you see the industry going, both from a legal perspective and from a tech perspective. I've been called a marketer before, more than once, actually many times. And I, I, my response is usually it's a huge compliment to me and then insult to marketers. I've had an opportunity to work with world-class marketers in my career, and I can tell you that I'm not it. But who I am and, and what I am all about is that I, I found myself in a very privileged position to go to law school in the United States, one of the best law schools in the world. In fact, I went to Berkeley Law. And where I started, that would not have been possible. And I really cherish that opportunity. I really truly believe in civil society and the rule of law. And I think law is very important. And I, I like being part of this course that allows law to be part of your life, to have a better relationship with law. And I really am grateful to be in the position to have those conversations in a meaningful, intentional, competent way. And so it gives me joy. And I'm really excited that I'm in that position. We, we can't talk about where you came from without hearing where you came from. Would you mind sharing your journey before you got to law school? I was born in Ukraine. My country is under attack as we speak by another country that may or may not believe in the rule of law. And I lived in Russia as well. I, I, grew, I was born in Ukraine. I grew up in Russia. And when I was 13, I immigrated to United to Silicon Valley. And my parents are engineers. And most of my life, well, initially I thought I would be an artist. Then I thought I would be an engineer. But look what happened. I became a lawyer. And the reason I became a lawyer is because I... I since I was 13, I've seen the power of technology to transform us as people, as community members, as professionals, as members of society. And I see law not keeping up. And I see that's a big problem. I see it a threat to civil society and rule of law. And my drive to go to law school was to be on the forefront of that conversation. So I went to law school to be a tech lawyer by design. Specifically at the time, I was very interested in conversations around privacy and security before those conversations were cool. My, my deep dive into privacy law was about seizure and search. And I, as I expected, it became all about privacy policies and your data. And, and I am really grateful to be in the position in the middle of that conversation and be able to shape the discourse and learn together with my peers and hopefully nudge things in a direction uh, to preserve civil society. Would you have gone into tech law uh, or technology if your parents didn't move to Northern California and you didn't begin inhaling that sweet, sweet Silicon Valley air? I was on the path to become an artist. I, I, I am so convincing and was my passion that I was able to convince my two parents who are engineers that it is totally normal and acceptable and will be profitable for me to become a full-time artist. 
So you can imagine how good at this. And it took them only forever, but eventually they embraced that task and their arguments were very valid. They have pointed out to me that I did not start out as an artist who was gifted to begin with. <laughs> I was in fact not gifted at all. And that everything I've achieved in art was through hard work. And that for people like me, maybe there are different paths in life. And But over time, over a course of about seven years, I managed to convince them to support me on that journey. No, I would not only have not been in law, I would not have been in technology. And I would have been doing different things with my life. I was very much working toward building a portfolio of art to go to various art schools and to make it. And I'm sure there's a joke to be made somewhere that uh, if you didn't go into law, but you were still into tech these days, there might be a bored Olga Yacht Club series of NFTs uh, as opposed to bored ape. But, you know, we won't make that joke. I would love to hear how you began to develop your voice. You were at Wilson Sonsini after law school. You started going to other tech companies or going to tech companies and serving in-house counsel roles. When did you first get a sense that not only did you have a, a message to share, but that you were confident sharing it. You were ready to write in publications. You've, you've written in publications like Above the Law, which is where I first found you years and years ago, but VentureBeat, Newsweek, Forbes, Bloomberg... MIT computational law report, you're all over the place. When did you first feel like you had something to say? I was in my high school newspaper when I didn't even speak English. So I think it's safe to say that I've always had something to say, even when my language abilities were lacking. I've always published since I've been in the United States. And I would even argue as an artist, you publish all the time by exhibiting your work and you get feedback and you see how people react. That's who I am and what I do. I published in high school. I published uh, some articles, which I was not really good at writing because my English was not good enough, frankly, but uh, I do have skill of drawing. So I was drawing for my high school newspaper as well. I've convinced my newspaper to even do some unorthodox drawings on the, in the front of the newspaper that never been done before. Again, that's how convincing I can be. And then I published quite a lot in, in, as in college. I did a lot in Berkeley. I went to Berkeley undergraduate as well. Berkeley gave me quite a lot of money to do research on textile trade. And I, I published quite a few articles there. I, in law school, I published quite a lot as well. I was invited to apply for the law review. For the death of me, I still couldn't, cannot understand why people sign up to edit other people's articles when they can write their own. So I instead chose to write my five law review articles instead of, I, I don't like editing. I am a creator. I like writing and sharing my thoughts. So in law school, I wrote five law review articles. And, I'm sorry, uh, five. Not, five, not one. Law students, there are law students out there who, who have their one single law review article in a frame and the hard copy edition it appeared in, in a nice, beautiful box. And yet you have five. So that's. Right. That's something to say. I care deeply about some IP issues, some constitutional issues, some privacy issues. I, I care deeply and widely. And I did, in fact, do that. And then I did publish when I was at Wilson and Sumper, published in ABA and a few other places when I was more professional. It is safe to say that I've always published in chair. And it's also safe to say that I'm trending from sort of niche publications to wider audience publications that are outside. I, I like having conversation with people from which I can learn and, and share my point of views and see them react 
uh, and in the process become a better person and contribute to nudging the world in the right place. I think that's the point of being a lawyer. What's really interesting to me is that you're doing all of this and you're not every lawyer was, is going to share your philosophy of communicating to the world and driving the conversation about what's of interest and what we should be thinking about in terms of our professions and the industry. And I'm curious, as an in-house general counsel, were there ever times, even if you, what you were writing about was not controversial, were there any times where you had a colleague, a superior, pull you aside and, and tell you you might want to think twice about publishing as often as you are or about publishing what you're publishing? Was there ever any internal resistance that you had to overcome from people who didn't see you sharing your message to have as much merit as you thought it had? Yeah, I'm sure people disagree. Some, I've had some interesting conversations throughout years. This is a profession where uh, sort of behind the scenes and secrecy is a norm. Clearly, uh, what I'm doing is against the norm, but I'm fortunate to see in my lifetime that is to be changing. Maybe not as quickly as I would like, but it is. it has changed quite a lot. I've definitely seen employers who asked me, for example, to approve everything I published, and that may sound like a good idea until you realize I published twice a week on a bad week. That will be quite a lot of approvals. And your HR slash PR will be basically working for me. And so that's usually a quick conversation. But I've had many conversations like that. And I've had a few general counsel who I said, oh, we need to tweet about this good news. They'll tell me, Olga, I'm not on Twitter. You shouldn't be on Twitter. And I would say, you're the kind of lawyer who shouldn't be on Twitter. But I am. That's who I am. So I, I think it was, I, you know, I, before I was in niche publication, it was, it's easier to have this conversation when you publish in legal publication about the narrow issue of law. I think it's really hard to, it's a bit much easier to get a, an approval and, and it's more acceptable way to put yourself out there. As I've been trending to work kind of more general audience and less about analyzing the case law and more about this is what I think the world should be. This is where we're going and this is how we're going to prepare. This is how we're going to support each other. And this is what I would like to learn. Can anyone help me? Those are different types of conversations than the conversation. The judge says so-and-so and this is what it may mean for your practice. And But the good news, I was also, that corresponded with me growing as a professional, becoming an executive being a number two lawyer, being a number one lawyer, being a strategist, VP of strategy, becoming a CEO. That actually is part of my job to do it now. The, my, the change of my audience and, and how much I put out there has increased just like, you know, the changes have been in, in my message. And at some point when you hire all, it's not a secret. All you have to do is Google my name, but you know what you're getting yourself into. And the one thing you will know is that I probably have a pretty good judgment. If you look at all my body of work, and if I, hiring me gives you trepidations, I invite you to read my work. The internet rec record is stubborn. You can read it. It's all out there. And you will find that as a general matter, I have a pretty good judgment. So yes, I've had many conversations and the people for whom I'm a little too much probably didn't hire me. Uh, but people who did hired me exactly for who I am. And, and it's great to be hired for who you are. Are there opportunities that were presented to you that became available to you based on you putting yourself out there. Again, you are not a marketer. It's an insult to marketers, but do you feel like there were opportunities 
that wouldn't have been available had you not been so out there in the industry, in the community, sharing your thoughts and giving perspective on policy issues and, and the direction of the law generally? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I would say my last three to four jobs came as a result, one way or another, through my, I guess, notoriety in social media and various other platforms. My, my, number, my position as a number two lawyer came to me as a result of my expression of views uh, about developing products and privacy. My becoming a general counsel became a direct result of me putting myself out there about issues related to gender and, and running a legal department. I was hired and discovered, not because I sent a resume, but because of my articles. My position as a side was, was a direct result of my very expressed publications about views of the future of technology, specifically things like blockchain. And yes, I've been, I, I did not find Parley Pro. I am a lateral CEO. I was discovered by founders and recruited by investors. And I was discovered by, by the founders through my conversations with general counsel. And that made me uniquely positioned to lead this company. So yes, absolutely. But I'm not mentioning all the other opportunities. I, I've advised many companies and have published in many places and teach at Berkeley Law. And I would say one way or another, those I, I, I come to folks' radar because they are somehow familiar with my work and my talents and think that I can help them further their mission. And I am really excited to discover people on my journey who, whose mission aligns with mine. I think it's fascinating when you put yourself out there and you make it very clear what you stand for. People who stand for those same things, people who agree with you tend to find you. And that's really interesting when it comes to employment because finding a CEO, finding a general counsel is, is not an easy effort it takes time, it takes energy, but to know that philosophically someone like you is out there because they can read what you've written. They can look at the podcasts you've appeared on and get a feel for who you are. I think it makes the process much more efficient because they can give you a personality test. They could have a whole battery of interviews, or they can Google your name, go to your LinkedIn profile, click on all the links to your articles and right then and there in your own words, understand who you stand for, what you're looking for, what you're trying, the, the change you're trying to drive. I think it's a fascinating way, just like you have it on the private attorney side where you are writing about issues that affect certain kinds of industries or certain kinds of companies because that, those are your target clients. Same thing here. You are not intentionally writing articles to get you hired, but when people are looking for someone who shares your insights, shares your mindset, shares your philosophies, they find you and you've put it all out there in the public for people to understand and to consume, you make it easy. You make it easy for people to find you. And, and on that note, do you have any problem these days going to a publication and saying, I want to write for Forbes, I want to write for VentureBeat? At this point in your career, do you have any kinds of obstacles getting a speaking engagement at a conference or a columnist position at an industry or tech or legal industry publication? You know, I don't approach it this way. I, what I approach is what's my message and what's the right forum. 
And and I find when you have the right message, the forum finds you. So I don't I I, I don't necessarily like would it be nice to publish for this publication because it seems like a really well known reputable publication. And there has to be venture bid, for example, is a publication where you would publish on on certain issues to certain audience. For example, their audience skews male tech investment. And if that's the issue I would like to discuss, that's where I will show up. So I'm very well aware of making sure that my message shows up to the right audience. And based on that, I will choose the forum. And usually I, I, I don't think I get invited because I'm Olga and I've done a gazillion thing. I, I think the reason I get yes to is because my message and my forum are a perfect marriage. Our mission is aligned and I have something to add to their audience. And they obviously have something. There's a reason why I'm doing it. They will add something to me. I, I think it's simple as that. It's like being dressed for a correct, for an occasion, right? There is this thing of being correctly dressed. There is a thing of speaking the right thing at the right place at the right time. And as somebody, as lawyers, we understand that. And that's how I, maybe I think about publications, speaking opportunities and all of that. For me, those are side things that I do for fun to express who I am, to move the law society technology forward in the direction that I would like to see it. I still have a full-time job and I very much focus on accomplishing and being successful and adding value to, to my employer and to my team and supporting them on their way. So it's less about the publication and getting in. It's more about, is it the right place for me to even show up? I have to ask this. It's a cliche question, but I have to ask it. Considering you started your career 20 years ago or so, did you have any concerns that you wouldn't be taken seriously, either because you were younger, you're a female, you're from Ukraine? Was there any concern at all, any hesitation that you might be speaking to the world, but the world might not listen back? Oh, I think I still have those concerns because in the grand scheme of things, my name is still Olga. I still have an accent. I'm still on the younger side for a lawyer. I I used to be younger, true, but I am, let's just say definitely under 50. And most people want to see gray hairs in their lawyers and I don't have them. And then some people have described me as useful in my energy. So yeah, sure. I have those concerns and sometimes they're probably even true. But when you advocate for something, when you truly believe in something, thing it, it's not about you it's about the message <laughs> it's about the message it's about the right audience it's about, about the right place and the right time and sure i'll get some responses that are you know, let's just call them inappropriate that are clearly in the range of what you just des- described of trying to get at a persona as opposed to the message and i think if you if you believe in the message if you are clear why you're there and what's your mission sometimes it's hard to tell what's going on and 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 you don't have to every you don't have to you i i you don't have you can listen to all feedback but you don't have to take all feedback <laughs> you can actually look at feedback and say that's garbage feedback <laughs> let's toss it and i and i do that now much more intentionally than before and i think that does help but sure there will always be this am i too young am i too female <laughs> Am I to to all kinds of things? At some point, it, it doesn't matter. If you look back at what you've written over the course of your career, do you see a change in, in tone? Do you see a change in confidence? Is there anything that that 
you see evolving over time, given what you have experienced and what you've learned over your career? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I feel, I think I've evolved much more into sort of sharing my views as opposed to reporting the views of others or analyzing the frameworks. So there's definitely a trend toward actually expressing my views. And there is also a trend towards speaking to general audience. Artists do not create art for other artists. <laughs> it's simple as that. They create it for the buyer, right? For the viewer. Novelists do not write novels for other writers, <laughs> though, though they may be consumers to some extent too. I, I think there's a realization, you know, especially as an in-house law, is that law in the wild behaves very differently than law in, in academia or law when you talk to lawyers. And I, I have a very strong belief that law should be of service to everyone, should be accessible to everyone. And we all, we, we may not be all equally proficient in this thing called law, but it is important to all of us. And so it, it, it has been my focus to, to shape the, not just legal conversation, but to shape sort of societal conversation to make sure we're talking about things that are important, often related to technology, because I think technology is such a big force. So I think that's a big trend. It's a trend toward me expressing my views and me talking to a wider audience where lawyers are part of it, but not. And then there's there are other people who care about loss and impacted by loss. I want to touch on some trends that you're seeing in the legal space, in the tech space. But first, I have to ask you, since I'm a personal fan of Notes to My Legal Self, and that's how I first encountered you through it on Above the Law, what was your inspiration for that? And did you have any concern with diving in maybe more into more personal content? I would certainly look at Notes to My Legal Self as a bit more of a personal content compared to talking about issues in cybersecurity, in blockchain, and DeFi. So I'm, I'm curious what your inspiration was and whether you had any reservations about looking a little bit more inward for the content. And the Notes to My Legal Self came to after I started putting drawings in my office and saw my colleagues having reactions. And, and, some, and, and sometimes the reactions would be expected, kind of like what I intended to do. And sometimes the reactions would be totally different and I would learn something in the process. So I was very well aware pretty early that a drawing can take you further. And I knew it all along because I have an art training, but in, in legal context, I became very aware of that too. And yes, they're much more personal, but drawings and, and visual medias, you have less control. So you also have this opportunity for what I call visual conversation uh, with someone. And it's funny, people read into a, a visual kind of even more than they read into words, at least they feel free to share it. So you learn a lot about a person in the process and, and about yourself. And I really liked that process. So I got, I did it initially just because I, I, I saw it work in my office and I wanted to see whether it would work at a larger public. And then I, I people would reach out and I would learn from those conversations and meet interesting people. And that would give me courage to do more. So it was a symbiotic process of learning. And I, you really learn a lot about person when you get them to talk about a visual that they have something to say about, that they're passionate about. So people, would, lawyers don't always put things in public. They don't always put comments in, in the LinkedIn comment session for a section, for example, or respond on Twitter. 
but I would get long letters <laughs> in email. People would come find my email. They would agree or disagree. Some would call me names. Some would call me Olga. <laughs> but there will be strong feelings. One of the strong responses I got was this one, what I thought was a simple drawing. I, I drew a staircase and I basically said, college, a law school, law firm, partner, death. <laughs> <laughs> And I named it something like a life cycle of a, of a lawyer. Oh my God, I got so many responses on this. Uh, people projected their career, their who they are as lawyer, what it means to be a successful lawyer. Some agreed, some disagreed, some told me that I missed a step. It was very interesting. The kind of conversations I had with people around the graphic that I put together in three seconds by hand was mind-blowing and I met all kinds of people and I just thought it was powerful. I thought it was powerful to be able to have those conversations and I learned a lot about us as lawyers and how we feel and anxieties and and insecurities and and I, I, I thought it was very interesting. You raise a really interesting point that you were able to connect with visual content in a way that perhaps your normal written content might not may not be able to pull off and it, it has me thinking do you see there being a, a role for visual communication in law are there opportunities that you see coming for there to be more visual representations to clients especially i would think in the direct to client space the personal injury the criminal defense the family law immigration where you might have language barriers, or you might have people who are not JDs, who didn't write five law review articles, who are still trying to understand from a lawyer, these clients are understanding from a lawyer, complex issues that even if they're watered down in terms of language, written words, still might, they might have difficulty still understanding and digesting. Look, I think visual, I, I call it visual IQ. I think it's a skill that is at least as important as EQ and financial acumen, but I would go further than that. I would say it is as important as writing and advocacy. We live in the world that is very much trending away from words and toward images. We are increasingly communicating images. Just look at your text and realize how many emojis you've used. And then realize how many GIFs you watch and videos you watched, and then compare that to how many words you've written and you probably and realize that you're probably an outlier because you're a lawyer, you still believe in words. The rest of the world has moved to visuals quite intentionally and quite a lot. In the age where the world is getting pretty visual, it's not just us communicating to our clients in the visual way. It's a skill. I would go as far as saying that most lawyers don't have the vocabulary to understand their clients if the visual issue of fact is in front of them. So for example, a very easy example, if your client comes to you and says, does those two emojis amount to termination of agreement? We don't have a framework how to have this conversation intelligently. And we don't have a framework at what point do you seek an expert advice to interpret those two signs? So I think of it as a much broader skill that I think we should be teaching law students. 
And we as professionals should be perfecting throughout our career because our clients come to us with increasingly more facts that are visual. And the flip side of it is what you hit on the head is they, their attention span for words is increasingly low. So perhaps there is a better way to communicate our legal advice and for us to be in a position to help them in a more visual way, way as well. But it's much more than just legal, giving legal advice. It's being a, a full human first who can interpret facts because being a good lawyer is not about just knowing laws. That's to some extent table stakes, researching and knowing. It's the abilities to synthesize facts and laws and the facts are increasingly visual. It is that simple. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you wrote a column about comic book contracts, which, or I guess it's, it's contracts that were communicated in comic book form. I've read some other articles that you've written about visual IQ. Do you have a book in you about this? It seems like a, a trend that um, is, is rising in the legal industry. Oh yeah, there is a book. There is an ABA published book that will be published in 2023. I am actively writing this book. The book uh, covers is basically two parts. One is sort of visual conversation basics, things that you, the ABCs of visual conversation, interpreting facts and, and being an active participant in that and making a decision at what point you need to have help. That's part number one. Part number two is various applications in law. One is in substantive giving legal advice, two in legal operations, three in legal marketing, and four in communication in and out of boardroom or courtroom, depending on your playground. So there's a lot of examples and applications. There are people who are already doing it. They've been doing it some for a long time, some more recently, and we can learn quite a lot from them. So yes, I'm in the process of writing that book. Obviously, the ABA is the American Bar Association, the leading industry organization for lawyers. I'm curious, how did you get to them or did they come to you? Because that is a obviously uh, prestigious or at least prominent publisher. Another publisher reached out to me and asked me to write a book. It's a publisher that was outside of the United States. They asked me if I had a book in me. I published a couple of books with publishers. Um, I'd never published for with a legal publisher. I published with mainstream publisher. I've published one book about how to get on corporate boards and a couple of books about smart contract security and blockchain business models. And I said, yes, I do have a book indeed in me that I wanted to write for a long time, but I'm afraid that you will never say yes to that and no one will want to read it. They asked me to put together a proposal. They said yes pretty quickly. And then at that point, I paused and I thought about why am I writing this book? What is the point? I've written enough books and I, every time I write one, I swear that I will never write one again because it's actually a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. And so I, I thought to myself, what, what is it? Why am I, why do I have this book in me? Why do this? Why spend my time doing this? And it's really simple. It's because I think it's, I think it's an important skill. I think it's a closet skill that some lawyers use intuitively and many lawyers need a permission to use and education to use it well. So I think it's very important. I then realized a couple of things that I am grateful to be in the position to be an American educated lawyer who is taken seriously and that whether you love it or not, American law has a, let's just say, influence less hegemony in the world. And I've articulated that my goal is to make visual IQ for lawyers a thing just like EQ and, and financial acumen or maybe even advocacy skills are. And to do that, I probably need to one, publish in the United States and two, publish with a publisher that is 
reputable and believable and can actually start this. And so that's when I, I approached ABA and ABA happened to agree with me. They, ABA has published something around visual intelligence in the context of demonstratives in the courtroom. It is one of the places in law where we acknowledge the importance of visuals. So they obviously have books on that. But what's new and different is the focus of one, an actual visual IQ as a skill, and two, focusing outside of demonstratives in the courtroom, actually in your day-to-day practice, in your marketing, in your legal operations. That is the part that is new because, and, and, and I'm really excited and grateful that I can partner with an industry leader to, to really start this movement. It's interesting, the importance of publishers, even for industry specific publications, like legal industry publications. I had Christopher Ruland on this podcast and he was a former colleague of mine at Deckert and he's a partner there. Now he runs his own mediation firm. And he wrote a book through Practicing Law Institute, the attorney client uh, privilege answer book. And we were talking about how the publisher makes a big difference because the publisher already has marketing channels and networking channels and can guide you much more easily than you would be able to do yourself if you were self-publishing or if you worked with a small-time publisher. So obviously the American Bar Association, any of us who are members can expect to see your book listed on the emails the ABA is sending about recently published books or books regarding any topic area that your book would fall under, your book will be on that list. So you have distribution beyond your, of course, wide professional and personal network. You have distribution throughout the ABA. Look, at the end, it goes back to what we had before. What is the message and what is the right form? I I think anyone who creates anything should at some point ask that question and have a very clear answer. Because if you're not clear with your messages, you'll have one sort of problem. And if you're mismatching your message with your forum, you have another sort of problem. All of those problems add up to lack of impact (laughs) and not being successful. If you are setting it out to, to have an impact, whatever it is, and to be successful, you will benefit from clarity of message and from the correct forum. (laughs) It's that simple. ABA is the most correct forum in this case. It's Yes, it is distribution. Yes, it's marketing, but it's more than that. It's a credible source of information today for American lawyers. That's my audience. I have an important message and I would like to be heard. And my only shot at being heard, despite my age, my gender, my, my accent, my anything else, is a good message in the right form. And I'm banking on that and I'm banking on that every time. It's a distant cousin to the well-known product market fit that you hear so often in Silicon Valley and in tech startups. You also have content market fit or you have content audience fit where you have to make sure the message is right in terms of what you're saying and who you're saying it to. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to take a moment here and talk about some of the legal and tech trends that you think will be uh, of prime importance in the next five years, today, tomorrow, next five years. You obviously called search engine privacy way back when you were there early on that. So tell me a little bit about what you're seeing trends-wise in both legal industry and the tech industry. Yeah, there are quite a few trends. And it is, again, I'm grateful to live in the times where my preferences and, and trends have sort of uh, 
similar mission and, and we can grow together. Yes, privacy and security will continue to be a thing. That is not going away. I recently had a conversation with somebody. She said, Olga, I am entering this new field called privacy. I'm super excited. <laughs> and I thought about it. I went to law school to study privacy. And I thought it was early. You are like now 20 minutes, 20, 20 years early and you um, you think you're early. And I had this conversation with my husband. I was like, it's really funny. He's like, you both, you know that because privacy and security are going to be here for the next 1,000 years. Objectively, both of you are early. In, the, in that 1,000 years plus timeline, whether you did it in year four or 20, it doesn't matter. It's the first 100 years. So we're all early, but so privacy and security are here to stay. And we're still early stages, despite the fact that some of us have been in it for 15, 20, 10 years. There are other things. Are there are a number of disruptive technologies that are on the market that will impact where we're going and how we live our lives and, and how we practice. There is a lot of trend towards sort of decentralization. There are a lot of trends towards democratizing access and there's a lot of trends toward transparency and and so all of that will have influence on lawyers and the way we give legal technology will be part of what we do and how we share legal advice how we consume facts and we really need to be watching it so i think those are very important trends i am highly optimistic that the role of a lawyer will be not just important, I think it will be increasingly more important. And I usually give a very imperfect analogy about emails. Remember the good old days when we wrote letters? I actually, I'm old enough to remember that. And I remember the transition to email. And the one thing that is true for sure is that I now don't have fewer communications. I have more communications with technology than less. <laughs> I now have so many communications that I can't keep up with all my inboxes period my emails are now many of them unanswered and or start with i'm sorry i did not get to you a year ago or a month ago as much as i try to stay on top of it so there are a lot of fears and anxieties around the role of lawyer and all i'm going to say look at the history of email the legal advice is not going to be obsolete your skills are important your ability to navigate complex issues will be critical, but your ability to understand what technology can do, how you can be an effective participant in this world will be equally as important. So yes, you'll have to learn something. And yes, if you do, you will thrive. So you should start learning today. Um, those are probably the, the big factors, transparency, democratization, and decentralization. They will definitely play a role and our jobs will evolve. But that's the fun of law. You can learn together. First of all, thank you for breaking down those trends. And I would have to think that if you took a lawyer out of the 1920s and put them in the 1950s or 60s, they would be shocked with what they're seeing. If you took a lawyer from the 50s and 60s and put them in the 80s or 90s, they'd be shocked. And, and you can repeat that process. Um, you often hear that with the rate of technology, that what we do every day would be was unfathomable to just one generation before. So think about what you can do with your iPhone or your Android device today. Maybe even while you're listening to this episode, the technology inside your phone, what it allows you to do, 
Now, could you imagine your parent 20 or 30 years ago, and you went back in time and explained to them what you would be doing with this piece of technology, they would have no clue they would think you're crazy. And if you went in, in 60s and 70s technology and went back 20, 30 years, they'd be shocked. So it, technology evolves, industry evolves, law evolves. And what's exciting, I think, is keeping an open mind toward and, and realizing that generally speaking, progress helps people. And, and as there's a proliferation of technology and of opportunity, there's more opportunity, like you said, for lawyers, not less. And, and I'll throw another imperfect analogy back at you, which is the idea that when ATMs first became widespread, bank tellers thought their jobs would be eliminated. There are still bank tellers. There's still customer service people at banks. They just do different things. They're not just always handing you money. They're doing different tasks. That, that, that's part of it, right? The other thing, let me, the law has always been evolving, at least to some extent, but the degree of change that we're probably going to experience is going to be actually probably much greater. And it, for example, despite whether you practice in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 2000, 2010, and even 2022, you probably believe that a written agreement is better than verbal. That, they, that didn't change. That core belief probably has not changed. Look, we now have technology, audio technology that can listen on what you're saying, transcribe what you're saying, have a record of it, automatically give you suggestions. At some point, we're not that far away that a written agreement is actually a poor cousin of a, of a well-witnessed documented agreement that is verbal. So the degree, so we always have changes, yes, but because of the, the this, and I think this is an important point to appreciate, the disruptive technology, they're disruptive for a reason. They will actually change some of the principles that we truly believe and have been trained on to be not true. That is the power. The, the power of disruptive technology is not just make you a little bit more efficient, a little bit faster, bigger, cheaper. <laughs> they are transformative. And we should expect in our lifetime that the way we practice law will be fundamentally transformed. Like my very good example is that audio technology with AI will have an impact on how we document things, plain and simple. We should be ready for that. So the, the, I do think that the changes are not small and I do think that they're not gonna be incremental. And I do think that they will cut into the heart of our core beliefs and things that we learned in law school. So we need to buckle up, <laughs> open our minds and really do what makes sense in the 21st century, given the technologies that we have today and disruptions that we will be seeing. So I just wanna be very clear, the disruptions will be here and they will be pretty big. And yes, for those of us who can stay on trend, understand what value we bring to our clients. And for those of us who have open minds, we will be able to thrive in this. If you will be holding on to your old beliefs, you may struggle. I, I, and I want to be very clear about this. This is not a threat. This is just a reality of disruptive technologies. They fundamentally change your assumptions. They put a mirror in front of you and ask you to question your beliefs. That is hard for most humans. That is not a natural tendency for us to do. That is hard. That is not easy because we have to examine our beliefs and assumptions and question and adjust. 
That is a process that takes time and that's difficult and that is coming. But you will be fully employed if you can manage to deal with all that. <laughs> well, in addition to blowing the minds of, of people listening to this, you also, I think, gave the best parting shot ever on a podcast. I, I can't imagine asking you a follow-up question that would get an answer that, that comes anywhere close to as great a, a piece of um, content that you just gave us. So I want to end it there. For anybody who has listened to this podcast who didn't know you before, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? I'm all over LinkedIn. That's my favorite playground. I walk the hallways of LinkedIn every day and meet some interesting people. And I look forward to seeing you there. Olga, thanks so much for your time, for joining me on Legally Contented. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Legally Contented. Thanks so much for tuning in. Check out the episode show notes for more information about our guests and for links to resources that we discussed during the episode. We'd appreciate your feedback and recommendations for future guests. Email us at hello at legallycontented.com. Hello at legallycontented.com. We would appreciate if you told your colleagues about this podcast, if you subscribe to the podcast and urge them to subscribe as well. And while you're at it, maybe you could even rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, thanks so much for tuning in to Legally Contented.